Uh, this morning, um, we're going to continue our study in the book of Romans. And if you want to turn to Romans chapter 8, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 28 through 30. And I must admit that um, I'm grateful for the pause in our study in Romans uh, as we looked at the accounts of the death and resurrection of Jesus uh, because it's given me time to pray a lot and to study a lot over these verses that we're going to look at this morning. Uh, I, I've done more time reading and praying over the last few weeks um, than probably you can imagine, and that might have already piqued your interest, but uh, th- this is a uh, very important passage and a very often um, disputed or, I I guess, debated passage by people that love Jesus. Uh, Some pastors have taken weeks to preach through these three verses. I I came across a pastor that had a seven-week series just on these three verses. Um, We're going to try to get through them all uh, this morning. I I asked Brian in, in the prep for um, this morning, you know, I said, I need as much time as possible, and so I appreciate that you know, he was able to do that uh, for me. Um, we, I said a couple weeks ago when we were looking at our study in Romans 8 that Scripture is often a warning to us, right? It, it's, it comes with a warning label, meaning that, you know, God is cautioning us, God is warning us, number one, what life is like without him and the problem and and troubles that come. Uh, But for believers, there are many passages in Scripture that offer a warning to us to to challenge our thinking and to remind us and and call us to uh, a life that is pleasing to God. And and when we are outside of the will of God, the Scriptures warn us of the trouble that is visited on believers, people that love Jesus, if they do not obey the voice of God. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a slightly different warning that I'm going to give you. Um, this warning means or is focused on the idea of we're going to dive into some deep theological truths. Um, and I, I want to be honest with you. What I will attempt to explain to you this morning has been written in volumes of books, preached in numerous ways, has, le- has been led to various interpretations, and sadly, and this, I, I highlight sadly, divisions in the body of Christ. Uh, God's people have divided over the interpretations of of what the words, what the concepts, what the truths are that Paul is sharing here. In our passage this morning, God is, or Paul is going to bring up truths about God's providence and sovereignty, God's calling, which is defined as election, predestination, and foreknowledge. And you might be thinking, if you've studied theology, uh uh-oh. And you might be wondering if you've never heard words like this, what's the big deal? Well, probably by the end of the service, you're going to understand what the big deal is. Um, These terms, especially election and predestination, make us feel uneasy. If we're honest, when we hear terms like this, we're uneasy. We wrestle with what they mean and what they don't mean. And my warning to you this morning, maybe not a warning, that that sounds harsh. My caution to you is that no matter how you feel right now, 
about these things. I'm just asking that you approach the text with an open mind, asking the Spirit to teach you. The danger is that we can approach passages like this with our minds already made up. And so if you've studied the Scriptures, if you've spent time in God's Word, and you've kind of formed it, and maybe we'll agree, uh, maybe we won't, um, that we can go into a passage with our minds already made up, and we kind of check out. I'd also like to add that you may disagree with me in my conclusions. But let's remember to keep Jesus at the forefront. Because I don't think anything that I will say will change who Jesus is and what he has done on the cross for us. I believe why we struggle with these things is because we're trying to understand infinite truths about God. And we have finite, and I, if this offends you, I don't mean it to offend you, but compared to the, the mind of God, He is infinite. We have like peanut-sized brains. <laughs> and we're trying to fathom and understand and plumb the depths of the things that Scripture teaches about who He is and what He has said. So I think sometimes when when we approach passages that are inviting us to consider deep truths, we can either check out and ignore them and say, I'd rather not think about that. Or sometimes we add to them. Like we, we were trying to rationalize and reconcile things that scripture says and here's what i want you to hear god is inviting us to some deep truths this morning but he doesn't answer every question and so what we try to do is take a step back and fill in all the gaps and we try to reason through the scriptures and say okay god god's word says this but it doesn't say all these other things so let's assume for god that These are all the blanks that need filled in. And I would just caution you, that leads us to trouble. And I would say that probably some of the big divisions that exist within the body of Christ are the gaps. It's the areas that we've tried to fill in as we try to rationalize and figure out what the Scriptures are saying. There is a tension that exists when we study the Scriptures and when we study passages like this. Because a lot of what we're talking about is a mystery. It's a mystery. It's not a Nancy Drew kind of mystery, a whodunit kind of mystery, but it's a mystery of trying to grasp infinite truths in finite minds. And how can all these things that God's Word says exist equally with each other? How can God's sovereign call and I'll explain that in a few minutes, equally exist with the free will of man. Because they seem like opposing magnets. Do you ever take magnets and flip one over and they just push against each other? They can't come together because they're opposing? We sometimes get in our minds thinking these things can't both exist, so something's got to change or we ignore one for the other. 
But much of what we believe about God and much of what is at the core foundation of Christianity is a mystery. We accept it as a mystery. I mean, who, who can explain the Trinity? The doctrine of one God and three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Who can explain well the incarnation of Jesus in his humanity as being fully God and fully man, and they both exist at the same time? Who can explain Jesus' miracles and the power that he has shown as he came to this earth? Who can explain the mystery of the resurrection? I mean, the, the very essence of who we are and what makes us believers is having faith in a mystery. And so I think we agree then with Paul, who writes later in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Like there are just times, church, that when we read the scriptures, we just need to take a step back and say, okay, God, you said it. I don't understand it completely. I don't, I can't understand and put together how it all logically fits. But because you declared it, it is true. And there are certain things that we just need to leave in the hands of God and believe because it's what he said. I try to avoid categories in, in who I am as a follower of Jesus. Like, we sometimes label ourselves. Now, I, I would say that I would label myself as a dispensationalist. And you're like, oh boy, another big word. All that means is I believe that God is progressively revealing the plan of redemption in periods of time. That's what a dispensation is. We teach the scriptures that way, that from Genesis to Revelation, God is in the process of redeeming us. And and, and in periods of time, there were different responsibilities in the relationship. But when it comes to certain parts of Christianity, we throw around labels like I'm Lutheran or I'm a Methodist. Or I'm a Baptist. And we think, what does that all mean? Um, and, and when it comes to the things that we're talking about, there's two major camps. There's the Arminian camp, and there's the, what we call the Calvinistic camp. And they're named after two men that believe different things about salvation. I don't want to put a label on myself and say, I'm this or that. Here's what I'm going to tell you. As we study the scriptures... I want to be as faithful as I can to the text. And people have asked me, Pastor, what would you say you are? And I say all the time, I'm a biblicist. I just try to do my best to teach and believe what the scriptures say. Sometimes it looks like this category, and sometimes it looks like that category. But it's not necessarily one or the other. In fact, if you were to ask people to believe in those camps, if they were to listen to this message, they would say, yeah, you're not me. <laughs> and so, you know, I, I just, I know it's a lot of prep work to get us ready, but there's a lot here for us to think about. When we look at the text, there's going to be some questions that abound. 
Some of these questions are, what does it mean that God has chosen people? Another word for chosen is elect. On what basis does God choose people? What does it mean that God foreknows and predetermines believers? What does that mean for those that don't believe? Does truths like election and predestination and foreknowledge negate the whosoever of the gospel? If God has it all predetermined, then why should we even preach the gospel? And the list goes on and on. Maybe some of you have wrestled with questions like that. I know we, we've talked about this in the Senior Saints Bible study uh, a couple times. I, I know that when we discuss these things, like I, I see the smoke coming out of the ears because they're, they're hard things. And I'll admit they're hard things. Now, if you've been around even just for a few weeks, you know that it is my firm confidence that our salvation from beginning to end is a sovereign, gracious gift of God. The very fact that we have faith in Jesus is because God has first loved us and He has given us the most incredible gift we could ever receive. It is my conviction from the Scriptures that God from eternity past before the world began, divinely chose or elected according to His foreknowledge those who would be predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And that every divinely elected child of God must respond by faith to the message of Jesus Christ. That the offer of salvation is not limited to the chosen, but it's offered to the whole world. And that the Christian community is called. It's not optional to go and preach the gospel to the nations. I think what happens is, We put our flag down in a camp. And sometimes we forget what God has said in other places for what we hold on to in one place. So here's what I want you to know. God is sovereign. And He has divinely chosen who would belong to Him. And you... And all people must respond to the offer of the gospel by faith. Those seemingly two opposite beliefs of God's complete sovereignty and man's free will don't seem to go together. But they do. They do. They're not opposites. They don't stand opposed to each other. The gospel is a free gift and it is offered to the world 
I've, I've quoted this verse many times, but 1 John 2.2 says that Jesus Christ is the propitiation. That's a big word for meaning satisfaction of the demands of sin to appease the wrath of God, the judgment of God. Jesus Christ is the propitiation of the sins of the whole world for everyone. When Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, he died for the sins of every person that ever lived to that point and will live until he returns again. His sacrifice is sufficient for every person's sin. Now the mystery in what hurts our heads is that when a person has faith, and trusts in Jesus, the Word of God tells us that God has, before the foundations of the world began, called us to Him. I don't understand it, but the Scriptures teach it. But before I get too far into describing these things, I want us to look at the text and see how Paul introduces these truths. And as we will see, our passage this morning encourages the believer to see that we are secure in our relationship. This passage is all about security in Christ. This passage is an invitation from Paul. And we've been looking at Romans 8 as security and assurance of our salvation. To know for sure that we are in Christ. It began in Romans 8.1 with, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those in Jesus Christ. And as a result of the gift of the Spirit, we are called to walk by the Spirit. The Spirit indwells believers. The Spirit prays for believers. The Spirit will aid in our ultimate glorification as we are uh, made into the image of Christ. And now Paul builds another step and he says, so that you know that God will never let you go. This is what he has done for you from start to finish. The question I want you to think about before I read this passage is who is in charge of your salvation? Is it you? Said another way, Is it up to you to find salvation, maintain salvation, persevere in salvation to the end? Or is it God who calls you and keeps you and ultimately brings about his eternal purpose in you? And how you answer that question will determine largely how you interpret this passage. So what does Paul say? Romans 8, verses 28 through 30. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. Now here's what I love about all the things that I said about all of these hard words. They're in Scripture. Like, I I didn't need to make them up. They're there. The, The writers of Scripture 
under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, write these things to explain who we are in Jesus Christ. Now, verse 28, for God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 28 is one of the most familiar verses to believers, and it is often one of the most misquoted verses by the Christian community. But before we look into the depth of verse 28, we're going to see a shift here in Romans 8. We're going to see a shift from the will of man that is called to walk by the Spirit to this point, the power of God that works in the believer's life. Paul begins in verse 28 and says, And we know... That phrase, and we know, is an expression based on personal experience. Paul is writing from his own experience. He's writing to the church in, uh, in Rome. And when he says, and we know, he's not saying, and I know. He says, all of us, when we consider these things, and we all know, based on our own experience, that as we walk through life, God uses all things. To bring about his good. If you were to take a moment and look back, you know, flip through the album of your life, and you think about not just the good times, but the very hard times, the difficult times, the challenging times, the times that broke you and shook you. What Paul says is the experience for all of us who are in Christ is God uses all of that for good purposes. Paul presents the Lord being sovereign over all the affairs of human life. God is king. When Paul says in Romans 8.28, and we know that God causes all all things, there's no mystery at what the phrase all things means. It's just that. It's everything. Like when you lose your keys. When you're late for work. When the guy cuts you off on the road. When you're overcharged for something. When you're sitting on the beach, when you buy your first home, when you decide who you're going to get married to, when you wake up and go to school on time, when you're disciplined in school and have to stay after, right? All things is all things. In God's Loving care. He uses every situation and circumstance of your life to work for good. Now, this verse is misquoted, and we need to kind of unpack some of that. The first thing is the truth of Romans 8.28 only applies to the believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't apply to everyone. And the text tells us 
the verse itself says. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Period. End of story, right? No. It doesn't. God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God. You know what's interesting about this phrase, for those who love God? It's the only time in the book of Romans that Paul references our love for God. Every other place when we read about love, it is always God's love for us. Paul here says that believers who love God and have a love for God, and Paul explains what that love looks like in verses 29 and 30, and he says, for those that love God are those that are called through the foreknowledge and predestination of God's plan. He justifies them and he glorifies them. That those people that are marked for those purposes who have a love for God, God promises to always work for good no matter what happens. The reason we can claim love for God is that is what John wrote in 1 John 4.19. We love because He first loved us. Like n- Nobody can say, I love God first. Nope, He loved you first. And it all started in a time before there was time. And that just... I can't fathom it. Our love comes as a result of God loving us first. Listen, if you're a believer, and I'm trusting most, if not all of you, believe and love Jesus this morning, I want to caution you that you are careful to share the depth and truth of this verse to those around you. Because it doesn't apply to everyone. And people that don't know who God is and don't know his love and do not love him in return, when they are walking through the valley of the shadow of death and you come alongside and say, buck up, camper, God will work it out for good. That's not the right application of what Paul is saying here. Second, the verse promotes God's good in our lives. And let me emphasize God's good, not our good, not our personal, fleshly, what I think is good. This verse promotes God's ultimate goodness in our lives. The good is what is good from the Lord's perspective. That means that when trouble falls on us, we cannot use this verse as a get out of jail free card and say, hey, bad day. Well, God's going to bring good and it's going to all work out. You know, it's like a 22-minute a sitcom that we watch. We, I took out the commercials. You know what they do in that half hour, right? They have to wrap up the story and make everyone happy at the end of the story. It doesn't work that way in real life. God's good doesn't mean the troubles go away. It may often mean to bring about God's ultimate good in your life. And the ultimate good is verse 29. What's verse 29 say? That we become conformed to the image of the Son. That is God's ultimate good for you, that he conforms you to the image of Jesus Christ. It may mean that the troubles don't go away. It may mean the troubles stay with you the rest of your time on earth. 
But the promise is you will be delivered from those troubles. It doesn't mean that God is able to use, or it does mean that God is able to use even terrible things that you have faced in life to bring about Christ's likeness in you. All of the terrible things that you have faced in life that you would never want to go through again, you would never wish on your worst enemy, God can use for his glory to make you more like Jesus Christ. Thirdly, this passage teaches us that God is not the cause of evil. What do I mean by that? Well, all things is all things. It doesn't mean it's all going to work out happy and wonderful. Paul doesn't say God causes all things, end of sentence. Nowhere in Scripture do we see that God causes sin or evil. In fact, James chapter 1 says that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt his children with evil. But here's what we need to know about God's sovereign plan in your life. God permits evil. He permits it. He permits these things, but he never initiates these things. And Paul says he causes all things to work together for good. What that means is that in God's sovereignty, he is able to overrule the evil designs of sin for good in your life. I hope you understand what that means. That God sovereignly can overrule the evil designs of sin that is in your life for his good. We specifically see that worked out in Genesis 50, verse 20. It's the story of Joseph. Joseph had some brothers. He had a lot of brothers. And they sold him into slavery. They wanted to kill him. He was taken out of his home with his relationship with his father. He ended up in Egypt. He was in jail in Egypt. He was then called by the providence and sovereignty of God in the ability in, or through the ability of interpreting dreams to, uh, dreams to be Pharaoh, who was in charge of Egypt, to be his right-hand man. And by the end of the story of Genesis, Joseph is in this place of prominence and power. And there's a famine in the world. And through God's blessing of Joseph's life, Joseph prepared for the famine. And his brothers that he hadn't seen for a super long time came to Egypt looking for food. And they met Joseph. And Joseph didn't turn them away. In fact, Joseph worked out the the opportunity for his family to be brought back together. And at the end of the book of Genesis, the family is back together. They're living in Egypt. Their dad has just died, Jacob. And their brothers are scared out of their minds that all the evil that they did that caused Joseph to end up in Egypt Joseph is now going to revisit all of that trouble upon them because he's in a place of power. And so in Genesis 50, verse 20, his brothers are shaking in their boots. Okay, they didn't wear boots. In their sandals. They're shaking in their sandals thinking, Dad's dead. Joseph is going to get revenge. Here's the time. 
And this is what Joseph says. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about the present result to preserve many peoples alive. Their evil intentions were overruled by the sovereignty of God. I've said before from Nahum chapter 1, Old Testament prophet, Nahum Nahum chapter 1 verse 7 says this statement, the Lord is good. Man, is that a comforting thought from my heart. The Lord is good. God causes all things to work together for good for those that love God. And then there's one more part to that verse, right? Those who are called according to his purpose. This gift is a sure promise given to those who love God. And those who love God are those who are called according to the purpose of God. Those that love God are those who are called. Now, This word calling refers to God's sovereign decision to call, elect, to choose those who belong to him. If you have your Bibles, you can put your finger in Romans chapter 8. Go ahead a few books in the New Testament to Ephesians chapter 1. In Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, this is what Paul writes to the church in Ephesus. I mean, this is what he starts out with. He's writing this letter to this church, and after he says, welcome, greetings, glad I can write to you, this is the first thing he says out of the gate. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundations of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. Now, in the original, verses 3 through 14 is one long sentence in the Greek language. As Paul is talking about our salvation and God's work in our life, he just can't stop. He keeps building on it. And you can read the rest of the passage yourself, but you see a lot of the echoes of what Paul says in Romans 8 and what he writes in Ephesians 1. Now, this word calling refers to God's sovereign decision to elect those who will belong to him. Now, let me give you a technical definition of election. Uh, This came from the Moody Handbook of Theology. Uh, Moody, not D.L. Moody himself, but Moody Bible School in Chicago. Um, Paul Enns is the guy that wrote this book. He writes this, What is election? Election may be defined as that eternal act of God whereby he, in his sovereign good pleasure and on account of no foreseen merit in them, chooses a certain number of men and women to be the recipients of special grace and eternal salvation. That's the technical definition. But what's difficult for our minds is that in eternity past, before the foundations of the world, God chose those who would be in him. Before you were ever born, before he even created the first man, 
God chose those who would be in Him. Now you might hear that and say, okay, great, but if that's the case, then did I really have a choice to believe? Yes. From my perspective, you and I have a choice in responding to the call of God to receive Jesus Christ. From God's perspective, every person who responded to the call to receive Jesus Christ has been called already by the eternal purposes of God. When I was in Bible school, one of my uh, theology professors kind of spoke through this word picture. He says, you know, for us, when it comes to believing in Jesus, we seem like there's two options. There's two doors to walk through. The I believe door and the I don't believe door. That, that's it. There's two options. You either believe or you don't believe. And let's say you walk through the I believe door. And when you walk through that door, you turn around and you see over that door a sign that says, you did not choose me, but I chose you. And so from God's perspective, and this is what Paul is writing. He's writing about God's perspective in Romans 8 and Ephesians 1. God chose us. And it's not disputing the whosoever of the gospel. It's not tearing down the free will of man. But here is where we get into trouble with trying to reason through these truths. If God has called those who will be believers, then he must have called those who will not believe. Right? We've been talking about those who will believe. And you think, okay, that's good. I get that. But then what about everyone else? And this is where we get ourselves into trouble and we try to fill in all the potholes and all the gaps and, and, and all those things. There are some people that teach this. It's called double predestination. That God has chosen some to believe and God has chosen some for eternal destruction. And the scriptures do not ever teach that. There is not one verse in the Bible that says that God creates people just so they can go to hell. The, the reason why people go to hell is because they've rejected Jesus and their sins are not paid for. It's not because God, before the foundations of the world, determined that they would go to hell forever. That would be a terrible thing for God to do, and God is good. It doesn't make sense, but this is what we try to do. We try to fill in the gaps. We try to reason through and come up with things that God hasn't said. The same apostle that wrote these words here would write that you believe in Romans 10.9 by confessing with your mouth and believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. Romans 10.9. Now, here's the thing about election. Here's one of the things with election. We do not know, nor is it for us to know, who is chosen. That's above my pay grade. It's above your pay grade. We don't know. We're not meant to know. That is the decree of a sovereign God from his perspective. Some things are left hidden to him. They are. We have to leave it there. What that means practically is two things. First, we do not preach for people to search for their election. When I share the gospel with someone, I'm not saying to them, hey, you know, I want to tell you about Jesus because you need to make sure you're elected. 
That's not what the Scriptures teach. All people are saved based on their response to who Jesus is by faith. Second, we don't boast in our election. I mean, I don't walk around saying, look at me, I was chosen. If anything, I look around and say, why on earth would God choose me? We don't boast in our election. To explain God's sovereignty and our salvation, a point that Paul begins in verse 28, he takes us through the process of salvation from God's perspective in verses 29 and 30. And these verses make up the framework that gives us the security in our salvation. What God has begun, He will surely complete. Now, verses 28 through 30 is what is referred to, and verses 29 and 30 especially are what is referred to in theology as the golden chain of salvation. There's like five links in this golden chain explaining from God's perspective what He's doing in our salvation. The first link is in verse 29. For those whom He foreknew... Now, foreknowledge is a term that is specifically describing God's decision to call or elect. This foreknowledge, though, is not based on God's omniscience that we would someday have faith. He did not look down the corridor of time and say, you know, that guy Todd, he's going to have faith one day and want to believe, so I'm going to choose him now in accordance to what he is doing. If that were the case about God's foreknowledge, then salvation would not be a gracious gift based on faith. It would be based on works, based on what I would do. And we know that salvation is not that way. God's divine gracious choice in his foreknowledge was based on his love for us. He's not looking at particulars. He's looking at people. Foreknowledge is based on his love for people. God foreknew us, not just our faith. If election was based on foreseen faith, then we secure it by what we do. God's foreknowledge is God's gracious and merciful regard upon us. Listen, we need to understand what Paul is saying here because in Romans chapter 3, we read when we studied this passage, beginning in verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. There's no one. We don't come to Jesus blindly just out of the blue like, I just woke up today and decided to believe. What we see is that God, by his eternal purpose, has been coming, drawing close to us. And when we hear the gospel, he does everything to prepare us and ready us so that we can respond by faith. It is God's divine act of delight by his sovereign good pleasure When I talk about this with folks, foreknowledge and election, and I begin to see the struggle, like maybe some of you this morning, I always remind them that when it comes to God's foreknowledge and election, that it's better for us to rest in the fact that God did not have to choose anyone to begin with. He didn't. Who disobeyed him? We did. 
but all of creation, and more importantly, all about redemption, is God saying to us, I desperately want to be with you. God wants to be with you. And he will remove every hurdle to make that possible. Now Paul adds, those he foreknew, he also predestined. Predestined means that God determined the destiny of the elect before creation. That destiny is specifically to become conformed to the image of his son. Not just heaven. Not just to get to go to heaven. We're predestined to become like Jesus. This verse agrees with Paul's statement in Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Our end, being conformed to the image of Jesus, is our destiny. It's kind of like Darth Vader talking to Luke Skywalker. This is your destiny. This is our destiny to become conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. We're not just delivered from sin and death, but that the creation would be conformed into the image of the Son of God. God is ever at work to reproduce Christ-likeness in us. That is how he can use every circumstance in your life, even the most painful, for his good. Because every moment, every second, every breath, God uses to make you like Jesus Christ. The question is, do you see it that way? And do you allow him to? Or do you become bitter and frustrated and angry that God would permit such things? See, I look at it in a wholly different light and based on what we see here. The trouble is coming. And it has come. And until I'm home, I'm living in a broken system, in a fallen world. And my flesh is sinful. And I don't look at all the trouble that comes upon me as, oh no, why didn't God just pick me up as like the magic crane in the game, pick me up and take me out of it. I look at it this way, that God in His sovereign love would use all of the mess that is around me, not to destroy me or defeat me, but to make me like Jesus. That there are no wasted opportunities. There are no mistakes. That God uses it all. Jesus is described as the firstborn among many brethren in that He is the preeminent example. He is the provision of who we will be when we are hid in Him. Those predestined, He also called. Our calling based on God's foreloving us is predetermined our conformity to the image of His Son, and it leads us to being justified. The word justified, as we discussed earlier in Romans, I believe in chapter 4 and 5 and following, this idea of being justified is being judicially declared by the righteous judge that we are no longer sinners, but through the sacrifice of Jesus, we are righteous like He is righteous. And we agree with what Paul says in Romans 8.1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
And those that are justified are glorified. Now, if you look at verse 29 and 30, those he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. And if you know the plan of salvation, you might say, Paul, you missed a step. What about sanctification? Because in in God's plan, there's justification, sanctification, glorification. I was saved. I'm being saved. I will be saved. What about the middle part? Well, Paul was writing about God's work in salvation. God justifies us, and God will ultimately glorify us. And I love what Paul says here in verse 30. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. It's past tense. What does that mean? It's sure to happen. It's already done from God's perspective. Nothing is going to stop it. The sanctification part is what Paul talked about earlier in Romans 8, in Romans 7, that as we walk by the Spirit, God is making us more like Jesus. And what Paul is saying from God's perspective, the work he started will come to completion. It doesn't mean that we're glorified yet, but you better believe it's going to happen. Like if I were a betting man, and I'm not, don't worry elders and people in the church, if I were a betting man... I'd put all my money on the fact that God is going to glorify those who trust in him. It's going to happen. Paul writes with such certainty that he encourages this church to see you can be absolutely certain. Now, as we close and process these thoughts, I'm going to ask you the same question that I asked when we started talking about these verses. Who's in charge of your salvation? Is it you? Is it up to you? Or is it God? I trust no matter if we agree on all the finer points of definitions and technicalities of definitions and things like that, uh, that you see that you are secure in Christ. I trust that you see that in this passage, that you are secure in Jesus because of the work that God has begun in you. And it's the work that God will complete in you and that you will be conformed to the image of his son. It also means that God is using every moment of your life. You can't miss that. Because I know right now, for some of you, you're going through some pretty hard things and you're probably thinking at different points, God, why on earth am I going through this? Why can't you just... Get rid of it. Well, that wouldn't be love. Love is saying that God's going to step into it with you and not leave you nor forsake you and whisper in your ear when you are overwhelmed that he will cause it to work together for good. What a kind God we have. That He doesn't waste any of it. And that's the one that we want to go to now and pray. Would you pray with me?